The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Uh, today's episode is a little bit unique. We are going to be talking about uh, the archaeology of battlefields and the archaeology of forensics. Um, this is a very unique topic, but one that has garnered a lot of interest in the past few years, especially with uh, an increased consciousness of uh, American heritage, a lot of the programs that uh, many of you have seen on public television, um, the uh, surge, I would say, in understanding Civil War archaeology, not in small measure promoted by the recent release of the film Lincoln, and just generally a, a very sort of, in, in many ways, a very sexy perspective on archaeology that we get from battlefields and war and, and unfortunately that kind of thing which seems to capture the public's attention very much so. Uh, archaeology has moved in that direction in many ways. Uh, on the other hand, uh, a lot of people, even professional archaeologists, don't really know a whole lot about what battlefield archaeology can give us. Uh, certainly the public is not awfully uh, familiar with it. And I'm very pleased to have as my special guests one of the pioneers in the field of battlefield archaeology. And, and my guest is uh, Dr. Douglas Scott. Uh, Doug uh, worked for the National Park Service for more than 30 years. He is a, currently an adjunct professor at the Department of Anthropology at the University of Nebraska. And Doug has a specialty in 19th century military sites archaeology and also forensic archaeology uh, related to both uh, wartime graves and mass graves, uh, even of the, the very recent past. And we will be talking about that as we proceed. He has proceed with the program. Uh, he's worked on more than 40 battlefield sites, and in 2002, uh, Dr. Scott was awarded the Department of Interior's Distinguished Service Award for his innovative research in battlefield archaeology that started with a very seminal piece that Doug published on the Little Bighorn Battlefield National Monument, the one that's clearly associated 
with Custer's Last Stand. Doug has also been involved with human rights associated with his forensic investigations, which have uh, which began, I guess, in the early 1990s. And uh, as we'll talk uh, farther on in the program, forensic archaeology and specifically the archaeology of genocide in many parts of the world, which is unfortunately a very recurrent theme in, in, in the practice right now, which is a topic that we will, again, uh, proceed to discuss as we move along. Um, Doug, I'm very happy to have you here. Thanks so much for showing up. Well, thank you, Joe. It's a pleasure to be with you. Doug, why don't you get us started? I mean, you have a long history and a, a, an extensive and illustrious career in the National Park Service. And why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got started uh, in, in in battlefield archaeology in particular? Well, it, it's, um, it, it is an interesting story, actually. Um, I had uh, studied at the University of Colorado in the late 1960s and early 1970s, which was dating me pretty well. Um, and I had uh, focused on the study of um, military history and military archaeology, particularly archaeology of frontier military forts. Um, my dissertation happened to be on uh, Fort Larned, Kansas. And uh, part of that was actually the work there was done for the National Park Service to, to rehabilitate and reconstruct portions of that, of that particular fort. A uh, very well preserved Indian Wars fort. And ironically, uh, for the rest of my career, Custer happened to have been there with the Hancock expedition in 1867. Uh-huh. So, uh, you know, I guess I'm fated to do this or something. But, um, uh, so I started in that, and, you know, but it was a phase I think a lot of archaeologists uh, in that period went through with um, restoration and rehabilitation and mitigation of, you know, in the cultural resource management sense of, uh, of dealing with forts and structures. Um, in the late or early 1980s, 1983, August, and, uh, 30 years ago, almost na- uh, now, um, there was a fire at uh, Little Bighorn Battlefield, then called Custer, Custer Battlefield National Monument. And um, that fire burned off the grass for, and the sagebrush, which was incredibly thick. And as a result of that, the um, superintendent of the park, uh, who happened to uh, have a neighbor uh, whose son was at uh, University of Calgary, uh, Richard Fox, a good friend and colleague. Uh, Richard went out and took, took a look at the battlefield and said, hmm, this looks like something that there may be information here that maybe isn't in the historical record. And he wrote a little report up, and that, that winter um, I, it landed on my desk in, um, when I was with the National Park Service in Lincoln, Nebraska, and we went ahead and said, let's get something going. And, and the rest, they sort of say, is, is uh, history and fate in the sense that uh, we, we did go out there in 1984, and um, I continued working at the Little Bighorn on and off on small projects for nearly 23 years. So um, and we garnered a lot of information there, and that just built on into the whole idea of, yes, we can learn something from battlefields. And if, if you'll let me ramble just a mo- one more moment here, our basic tenet, and and, and uh, idea behind all this was when we started that work, which was um, you know, Richard and I were both a little surprised at how much information was going to come out of something like a battlefield. We thought, we'd, yeah, sure, we'll find artifacts, and we'll wonder if they're in any sort of patterns. But that would, that leads into what our tenant was, that human behavior is patterned, and human behavior is patterned in almost anything we do, and there's residue from that that 
that those events, those decisions made, and particularly in combat, because uh, people are trained to fight in certain ways, whether it's Native Americans in war groups or um, and people come and go as they choose, or the U.S. military, in our case with 1876, and uh, they're trained very specifically how to use their weapons and deploy and fight and so on. And that's ex- we assume there might be some patterning in that sort of what people perceive as a chaotic endeavor, uh, warfare. And sure enough, there was, and we were able to uh, explicate a lot of stuff that was not really in the historic record. Well, well that, and that's really one of the issues that I'd like to bring up here, and, and I think it's really a, a sort of a seminal place to to look at this in great detail because let's let's look at this in perspective when you started doing this work at 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 little bighorn i mean we're talking about basically only about a hundred years after the event right uh yeah it's about a hundred and uh, what was it 27 or 110 actually i guess i could think how old i am here <laughs> right right but i mean we're talking about continuity and we're probably talking about what well, we're talking about an area that even today is, is 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 not extensively populated. And I'm assuming that at that time there were probably people out there whose grandparents, if not parents, had had memories of that particular period in time. And my assumption would be that somewhere, somehow, somebody went out there and did some surveying or did some examinations, be they amateurs or quasi-professionals or people just out of curiosity who would have known pretty much where the area was, what it was, and they would have gone out there with metal detectors or related types of items and done some work. And and between the uh, probable oral accounts and that kind of work, they would have known something about it. Is that true or not? Oh, absolutely. Little Bighorn was never a lost battlefield. Every... Uh, everybody knew where it was, and literally, when we were working there, we were we spoke with um, grandchildren and great grandchildren of uh, the combatants from both sides, and right. we had uh, Cheyenne and Arapaho and and Lakota uh, folk who were uh, came out to visit us and see what was going on, and some of them uh, and and some Crow as well. Uh, who had been on the scouts on the side of the army, um, but uh, they they were telling us stories of their ancestors, you know, second and third and fourth generation sort of oral histories, and it was it was fascinating. So and 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 again, there's never been a lack of interest in the story of the little bighorn, right or sure. wrong, indifferent doesn't really matter. Uh, from the day that battle ended until right on to today, there's people who are speculating about what caused Custer to lose or how did the Indians. Win doesn't matter which perspective you uh, take. Sure. And um, and there were there were tremendous number. Well, it's over a thousand books and articles written on the Little Bighorn alone. That I'm uh, well, almost a thousand books alone, I think. And um, it's a, a massive amount of literature which we had to to get used to. But there were also early researchers who had tried metal detectors in the 1940s and 1950s, and then there were others who were illegally um, out there in, the, in later years. And one of the questions we ask is how much might have that, that kind of work compromised our, uh, our ability to do it with modern metal detectors, which are much more uh, um, 
sensitive to uh, small objects in the ground than they um, than they were back in the 40s and 50s, certainly. And um, and that was one of the aspects that we tried to to address and have have done so since on other sites. But you know, we we didn't bring this out of whole cloth. We didn't invent metal detecting on battlefields or the concept of pattern uh, analysis or anything like that. That's it. We just we brought things in from a variety of. Uh, of historical and archaeological disciplines and uh, applied them. You know, we're really good at borrowing ideas from other people. Right. <laughs> so I, I guess my, my real uh, baseline question to you, Doug, is so you got all this, I mean, you have obviously a multiplicity of sources. You have informants, you have relatives, you have uh, some of the data that was put together previously. How do you start? How did you start with that? And where did you get where did you get going? What did you use as a baseline for how to do the archaeology? Well, um, we literally uh, were overwhelmed the first day with the number of artifacts coming out, and uh, uh, we knew we were going to have to map stuff. We were using the point lo- you know, plotting sort of individual artifacts, each giving a, a specific location. Back then, we were using transits. Later on, we used global positioning systems and, and GIS, but um, the when we when we realized how much information was really out there uh, on the field, and this has been as this has continued on and on other battlefields I've worked on and other conflict sites as well, is that you realize you have a tremendous amount of physical evidence. And one of the things that we thought of early on, um, Richard and I, uh, was the uh, was the fact that what we're dealing with is not. In, a, in an ex- intellectual sense, um, it's not much different than a crime scene. Obviously, we're not trying to f- find medical legal issues here or guilt or innocence. That's not the, not the point. But the concept is there. And if we would read um, in an analogy that um, a criminal investor, uh, investigator comes on the site, the, the police detective, if you will, and he said, uh, uh, but read that as historian. And the historian's going to talk to, or the police investigator's going to talk to the, uh, if victims survive, uh, alleged perpetrators, witnesses, um, and, and the historian's going to use a variety of sources, oral history, uh, documentary resources, uh, in the same manner that a detective might uh, deal with witness testimony from various sorts, and they've got to sort that out. And, and oral history plays into this, an oral tradition from the Native American side and from, from the others who have participated there as well from the side of the, of the surviving soldiers and so on. So we, we have a very rich historical and oral history, but then we looked at ourselves as sort of the forensic scientists, if you will, and we were dealing with the physical evidence. And, and as we as archaeologists are going to look at the how that information, those objects are distributed across the field, how they're associated with each other, and due to the various kinds of analytical processes that we, we use, we can get even deeper into the story, which I'll come back to in a second. So we, we're, we're kind of the physical evidence guys. And that doesn't mean that history is better or the archaeology is better. It's, it's all about how you put it together, which is, again, a crime scene analogy. It's how you put the story together and vet each other's set of data uh, in order to come up with the most comprehensive, um, realistic scenario of what may have happened and how that may have affected the bigger picture. Now, we can 
get into the big anthropological things that we can sometimes play with and look at how strategy and tactics played a role in terrain modeling and so on that uh, the military is interested in these days, and and we can we can pull all that together. But again, taking a holistic approach, I think, is one of the most important things that uh, at least in the conflict studies uh, area we have we've done. And it, this is again not new. Um, in the sense of, of other people have done this and done it very very well, and we we were just um, up, we were applying it on very very large areas. Um, we, we've in, ended up doing around um, 4,000 acres of land out there at the Little Bighorn. Um, it's not every square inch of that, but um, it's a good deal of it, and we're you know able to look at these big uses of, of movements of people across uh, large landscapes. We're going to have to take a break here for a minute. We'll be back and uh, continue our fascinating discussion with Dr. Douglas Scott of the University of Nebraska after these words. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The daytime discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. He'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnists. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show. Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. I'm back with my very special guest, Dr. Douglas Scott of the University of Nebraska, and we are talking about battlefield archaeology, and Doug was describing the scenario uh, in the late 70s and early 80s when he first uh, began doing extensive work in battlefield archaeology, and specifically at the Little Bighorn 
and uh, the trials and tribulations that were involved in the discovery and the assimilation of all the information that he was able to put together um, on the on the little bighorn and Custer's last stand. Doug, let me ask you at a very rudimentary level, what were you seeing and what right after they cleared the area, cleared the battlefield area, and you said it was overgrown? What were you looking at? How did you get it started? Just in a technical sort of sense. Well. Joe, it was really kind of fun. Um, we, uh, Richard Fox and I went out there with the idea that we'd use um, um, visual inventory, walk over the field just like we'd normally do on any archaeological site, map that material in that we could find, and then we would try this uh, idea of using uh, metal detectors in a systematic way, lining uh, folks up in a, in a space so far apart, uh, about 15 feet, and just kind of walk and see what they might find. In the first hour of that first day, we recovered no artifacts visually on the surface. We saw nothing. But in that first hour of that first day with metal detectors, we had over 100, well, 110 artifacts uncovered. Wow. About 80% of those were battle-related. We had the cartridge cases from the carbines of the soldiers. We had uh, the cartridge cases from several of different kinds of Indian weapons. Um, we had bullets, uh, which you might expect since the cartridges have got to shoot something. And... Yeah. We even had the, uh, a part of a Colt revolver from one of the soldiers. And, and we, Richard and I just looked at each other and said, well, we've got a new model about how we're going to find things. And that's what we continued to do. And that whole process of using metal detectors and, uh, on, on the field of battle and in historic sites and other metal-bearing uh, sites has, has become more and more common uh, over the last, uh, last 30 years, really. And we, we like to take a little bit of pride in thinking we pushed that in a major way, not that, say, other people had not been using uh, metal detectors, but we certainly uh, – um, but it was, it was just amazing to see how much material. By the time we were done, um, we had recovered, um, and, then, and this is all the years later, um, and this is only a sample because we did not try to do every inch out there, but over 5,000 artifacts related to the Battle of Little Bighorn and plenty of other uh, later material as well. Um, you know, there are lots of other activities that go on out there, and we even found some prehistoric sites, uh, not with the metal detectors, as you might expect. Clearly, clearly. Uh, but but yeah. so you were out there, and how many years were you out there? Well, uh, I worked there a total of on and off on a variety of projects for 23 years. Uh, okay. So you can say I have a long-term investment in uh, in that site and uh, what what's there and, and it, everything with you know we've we found uh, metal arrowheads uh, of course uh, you know we all know Indians use bows and arrows but the myth of that is that the total number of arrowhead uh, metal material uh, we found were 12 and and yet we've got hundreds and thousands of uh, cartridge cases and bullets uh, so this was a gun battle. And with, with the information that we retrieved from that, um, we were able to do a tremendous amount of, inf of, under, uh, of analysis, of detailed analysis using, again, a crime scene analogy. We right. used the firearms identification process where you go in and look at the cartridge case and the bullet and you look at the information contained in that object, just like we would any other archaeological um, piece of material, shirt or a, a projectile point or, or, or lithic debris or whatever it might be. But we could tell from the landing grooves, the rifling marks on the bullets, 
what kind of rifle or pistol that was fired in, a brand, you know, a Smith & Wesson, a Colt, whatever it might be. Um, from the cartridge case, we could do the same thing, but with detail level of microscopic analysis, uh, using the same principle that uh, crime labs use today, in fact, I've actually um, did, uh, took a little bit of training with the Nebraska State Patrol to learn how to do some of this stuff and have learned more since, but uh, it was looking at the microscopic, essentially, fingerprints of the of the uh, firing pins on uh, the imprints on those cartridge cases, and with that we could begin to say how many individual weapons were represented, not just how many uh, types of guns, but how many individual weapons. And because we had plotted all of this stuff so so precisely, we could literally be able to follow those guns around the battlefield. And at the Little Bighorn, this was the first time this had ever been tried, and uh, it worked, and it worked very well, and we were able to show that the Native American warriors were working in their war groups and moving around and fighting, um, and as as they uh, destroyed elements or reduced elements of, the, of Custer's command, which was divided up a little bit, uh, then they would move to another spot. And we've traced some weapons uh, moving over a mile uh, through that battlefield. And I think that's pretty remarkable. And we've even got a couple that go out upwards of three miles between the, what we call the Reno-Benteen fight and the Custer uh, main battlefield fight. So, so, so you said something really fascinating in the beginning, and I think a lot of people who are both uh, sort of emerging professionals and, and a lot of lay people, when we start out doing the archaeology, we're really not entirely sure how we're going to go about doing that. And then you said very early on, within the first hour, you found X number of artifacts, and from what I'm gathering, that already started to give you a direction, and a direction, right? Is that, right, is it, and we, we had a research design and ideas of where things might, what might happen and where things might go, but honestly, we didn't expect as much material, and, right. and when we got into it, we realized we had to adapt. It didn't change, the, you know, we were stayed within our research design, but our, our field methodology had to adapt very quickly, which is, you know... That Part we should be course. able to do that. You yeah. have to think on your feet. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you've been through a. So what? What are the steps you went from? From, from obviously you went from the original uh, discoveries that you you moved ahead with, and then all of a sudden you get a little bit of direction, and then you get a little bit of interpretation, and then your research design starts to change a little bit. And now you're starting to put pieces together. What? Take us through the uh, the range of interpretations that you were able to generate once your methodology really started to get matured and, and, and when you started to say, okay, here is where we really need to move because we're starting to understand the chronology of the battle, the logistics of the battle, the strategies. How, how did that work and, and what did you come up with uh, based on the archaeology? Well, you, you struck a good point there. Uh, you know, things evolved as we went along and we learned more about uh, from the from material culture as well as how to integrate it very effectively with the historic record. Uh, and that was one of the nice things about that particular place, being a Park Service site. We had historians um, um, who have taken a very strong interest in what we did and uh, had an interest in material culture themselves. So they could, we could 
have these wide-ranging conversations about information, and they took us in new directions to think about things. But we could, it, down to the nitty-gritty kinds of things, finding um, uh, coins that might have been in a guy's pocket or the um, um, buttons from his uniform or, or the comb that he used to comb his hair uh, that probably was in a saddle bag or something of that nature. All of those little personal kinds of things give you a sense of how the men um, on both sides, we don't have much Native American paraphernalia, but a little bit, uh, were dressed, um, how they were clothed, how they, um, um, what kind of saddle gear they had, what, um, and all those kind of things are interesting of themselves. They show the evolution of transportation, if you will, uh, and, and throughout that period. And then the details of finding out about how with this firearms identification process, how people literally moved across that battlefield. As I mentioned, the warriors were able to move and use the terrain, and that was one of the valuable things we learned, is that they took advantage of the hillocks and the cover and the terrain, what they call the military crest of the of the hills, where they could take cover and then fire on the soldiers. The soldiers did what they were trained to do, take the higher ground, they were often, uh, more often silhouetted against the skyline. Um, they, they deployed in skirmish order. We could see that from the artifact distributions uh, until the last when there's clearly a command and control disintegration. Most of the officers, most of the non-commissioned officers are probably down. And, and there's, it, it just, the whole the army failed. Uh, the whole command and control system did fail. And, and we can see that in that archaeological record along with, and most importantly, the oral tradition and oral history of the Native Americans. And they go hand-in-hand hand better with the archaeological record than the speculation by the Army about what happened out there. So, you know, it, it added a new dimension. We've taken that concept and applied it in a number of other places. Um, the Nez Perce campaign of 1877, where we uh, worked at Big Hole Battlefield and, and have done some work at Bear Paw and some others related to those sites, and have found, again, that the Native American tradition, oral tradition and oral history that had been recorded in the early 19, uh, 20th century, late 19th century, uh, meshed with the archaeological record better than many of the uh, uh, Army and civilian uh, white folk accounts. So, you know, we've, we've seen that. And that isn't always the case, but um, uh, it, it's about, again, taking these holistic approaches, learning um, the different points of view, how does how does that material culture uh, fit together? And I, mean, I like to always say that the archaeology is out there. It's the physical remains of the battle. We can't always figure out what, why somebody made a decision, but we can see the result of that decision by the distribution of those artifacts. Those artifacts don't have an agenda, whereas somebody telling a story might many years later might have forgotten or be concerned about uh, retribution or anything. So uh, the artifacts are uh, just another source of data that we can add together to, to tell that story. And and I might add just very quickly that one of the things that Little Bighorn is, not only we find the material cultural evidence of the battle, we found human remains that had either been overlooked or partial human remains that had not been dug up and put in a mass grave in the 1880s. So we have some of the guys, none of the none of the warriors, none of the Indians. They they'd removed all of Lakota and Cheyenne and Rappo removed all their dead from the field and wounded, um, and that's accounted for on all all sort of documents. But we found some of the guys and learning about them, uh, learning about the, the the men who died with Custer. 
uh, was at an another dimension, a very personal dimension about those people's lives and how they lived and how they died. We're going to have to take another break. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of minutes and uh, continue our discussion with Doug Scott on the archaeology of battlefields. Don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Michelle Core Six Degrees is your connected consciousness. Six Degrees is what comes around, goes around radio. Committed to delivering a fresh perspective on thought-provoking, investigative information that can change your life. Six Degrees connects you to the social and emotional scene and is your trusted advisor from finance to romance, mainstream to metaphysical. It's a positive, upbeat look at life, love, and the pursuit of passion. Get connected Saturdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra goarc.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back. We're discussing battlefield archaeology and specifically the Battle of the Little Bighorn with uh, the principal archaeologist who undertook the original investigations of that battlefield, and that's uh, Dr. Douglas Scott. Doug, I just want to, in, in summarizing, uh, ask you and sort of put you on the spot, what was the biggest piece of information, the biggest interpretive perspective that you gathered from doing your archaeological work that had not been sensed before or had not been advanced before? Well, I think that uh, there's a couple of uh, things. They relate to one another. One is uh, how effectively armed uh, with firearms the uh, Native American folks were, the Lakota this, um, and the Cheyenne and, and, the Northern, and the Arapaho folks, uh, the warriors who fought there. But everyone knew that the, the warriors and the Indians in the villages and so forth outnumbered the soldiers at about seven to one. Uh, but when we started calculating the um, potential for, for the range and types of firearms. We found 47 different types of firearms used by the Indians, ranging from muzzleloaders to the latest Winchesters, uh, the, the classic Winchester 1873 and some of the earlier versions, but, and those were all uh, repeating firearms. So, uh, while the stopping power of the firearms, which we've done a little bit of uh, research on too, has not, um, um, uh, at least the Indian firearms is not as um, as good as the army guns, and also the range. But the ranges between the two firearms are pretty similar. But when you have seven to one odds, and you have significantly more 
of weapons that can deliver a greater uh, firepower, uh, that gives you an advantage. I don't think people understood that, how much the firearms had played a role in the battle uh, before uh, we, we found that physical evidence. The second thing, and it ties into this, is that the warriors um, were able to use, as I mentioned earlier, the terrain uh, more effectively than the soldiers, and they were able to get in behind hillocks and in ravines and be able to pop up and fire and drop down and maintain cover, uh, protecting themselves uh, while still uh, delivering intensive amounts of firepower uh, to the soldiers. In the same term, we've, we've done some terrain analysis, military-level terrain analysis, and, and looked at what, what the military calls weapon fans, and we were able to look at this through geographic information systems and, and plot this uh, out. And we can see in certain areas, like Last Stand Hill, where Custer's uh, last 40 guys and himself and uh, two brothers and a nephew were all found dead. Um, looking at that, we were able to see that where – the men stood on Last Stand Hill by just plotting uh, uh, lo locations of artifacts and so forth and doing this weapons fan analysis, that there were, there were dead spots or places those soldiers could not see that up to 100 yards away from them, so, and those are low spots and ravines, and the warriors took advantage of that, knowing that terrain, were able to get in close and fire at the soldiers and, and, and finally annihilate them. And I think that... That is another factor that the distribution of those artifacts, coupled with a study of the documentary and oral history, uh, it tell, begins to show us that this terrain became more and more important. The simple way of ending it is saying that Custer was outnumbered, he was outgunned, and he was outfought. Wow. Interesting. So let's uh, segue into the Civil War a research that you've been doing, and I imagine that the level of expertise and sophistication has expanded significantly since you did the early studies. What are you doing with Civil War sites, and, and, and what kind of uh, information and recovery techniques are uh, becoming in, in de rigueur at this point when, in that situation? Well, um, in, in American Civil War, and I, I work mainly in the uh, area of Missouri uh, in the western uh, Trans-Mississippi West, which I find really interesting because uh, we can do some things there. Uh, that some, many of these battlefields are less disturbed than some of the stuff in the east. But um, uh, you know, as, as well as as well as terrain cover and vegetation, and yeah, that sort of and thing. smaller battles, and we can yes. get our, kind of get our hands and our minds around those, uh, so we can test some models out there. The the capability of metal detectors and just generally our geophysical uh, techniques. Uh, magnetometry, ground penetrating radar, things like that have gotten much, much better over the years. And, we're able, and, and metal detectors are just a, a conductivity meter, a fancy conductivity meter that does near-surface stuff only. Uh, so it's a geophysical technique. And, but things have gotten better and more, more precise, and, and, we, and we can get a lot more data out of the ground very, very easily. But I'm working on one. I've been privileged to work with a group out of St. Louis called America's or uh, Missouri Civil War Heritage. Uh, foundation, and they're working with uh, developing driving trails for the uh, sesquicentennial uh, currently going on. And one we worked on uh, this last March was a place called um, Moore's Mill, a very small battle fought in 18, November, or July of 1862. Um, and it was uh, a, a, a Confederate 
uh, Officer uh, Porter had uh, come up in, in northern Missouri to recruit among the uh, um, southern sympathizers uh, soldiers to go to the Confederacy, and he had gathered several hundreds. And um, the Union forces were trying to chase him around. And, of course, Missouri was incredibly divided in the Civil War. Third largest numbers of battles were uh, in, in any place were fought in Missouri after Virginia and Tennessee. So it's a, a kind of remarkable state, very, in, very much brother against brother and father against son sort of, sort of internecine warfare stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, fascinating story. But Moore's Mill was not a, not a big battle. It was, um, it was an ambush by the Confederates who were not as well armed as the Union. The Union was able to bring cannon in and drive off these Confederate forces and save the day, so to speak, and sort of disrupt Porter's uh, recruiting activities. But I had, a, I had a very personal connection to it. Um, one of my relatives, one of my ancestors, was actually uh, on the Union side. Um, and, and oddly enough, we had two other people uh, who had volunteered to come work on that project. One of them uh, had a, another, uh, one of the other Union units, and one of them had an uh, ancestor who had been wounded on the Confederate side. So wow. we all had these sort of very um, poignant Personal moments. connections, yeah. Yeah, per- very personal connections to the ground. Um, and we were, and none of us had much oral history from the family on any of this, so it, it was new. But we were finding the places. We were finding the Confederate lines. We were finding the Union lines. And uh, it's very clear that we did find areas in which uh, this um, gentleman's ancestor on the Confederacy probably fought, just in the general area, and certainly the same on the Union's side with the other other volunteer. Uh, my ancestor was with a particular unit that um, that area of the field was uh, had been modified by farming to, much, to the point that uh, we didn't we didn't find as much, but I suspect we were in the right general area. Right. So, uh, but it was it was neat. Um, it was it, you know very poignant in in many many ways to you know picking up these artifacts to be privileged to be picking up these artifacts on um, private land where we we had per, uh, access to the folks' property and they said yes and they're interested in preserving it and. Uh, uh, but finding the bullets and the, the, the fragments of shells from the uh, James rifles, the cannons that were being used there, and you can see we could begin to see the burst patterns of these shells by finding fragments of the fuses and the bodies of the shell, uh, and so it must have been pretty hot and heavy stuff. And you begin to you know really appreciate some of the the things you that uh, your ancestor went through, and uh, I think it it kind of brings it home. It was pretty exciting. And so you have a very personal connection to that. Yeah, obviously. and it was fun that the, the three of us had uh, such an interesting personal connection. Uh, so we were able to kind of to bring some from perspectives to it um, that uh, I think otherwise might not have. Uh, and, you know, we can be the objective scientist and have fun as a volunteer out there finding things, which is what uh, – uh, what we've done, but they're also, you know, we're we're adding to the story from a professional uh, point of view, and and these artifacts, of course, will be preserved and placed in the local local museum when everything is said and done. But we'll be able to tell, a, a, I think, a very rich story, and 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 the depth of it is leads right up to today. And on that note, I'm afraid we're going to have to close this uh, version and this program. Uh, Doug, thank you so much for participating in the program, and we hope to bring you back and continue our discussion and expand into the realm of forensic 
uh, archaeology and and larger scale warfare and the tragedies that uh, archaeology can uh, expose uh, in those particular contexts. Thanks so much, and uh, we'll see you next time. All right, thank you, and be glad to come back. I Thanks sure time. appreciate the opportunity. Okay, bye bye. Bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.